I'm trying to finish what I've been doing now for four weeks. And so the best way to finish is to start something else. And um, even though it certainly relates to what we've been saying, but it is a new series. And I want to begin by reading Acts in chapter 9. It says Saul, and of course, Saul there is his Hebrew name. We all know him by Paul, but if I keep switching from Saul to Paul, understand I'm talking about the same chap. So now Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest, asked for letters from him to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, they weren't called Christians. It was a <clears throat> looked upon as a subcult of Judaism in those days, but they were called the people of the way. Jesus said, I am the way, and the very first believers were called the people of the way. And so he went to look for anybody who belonged to the way, and he didn't stop with men, men and women, that he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. And as he journeyed and he's approaching Damascus, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. And when he told the story later on, he said it was brighter than the noonday sun, like a thousand suns, light. He fell to the ground. And from within the light, he heard a voice saying to him, and further down in the chapter, it tells us that um, Jesus himself was in the light and Paul saw him and, and, and says to him, Jesus says to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus. And when he tells his story again, he points out very specifically, not just any Jesus, I'm Jesus from Nazareth. And I'm the one you're persecuting. It's, it's the same, if you remember, when they came to arrest Jesus in the garden, and Jesus said, who are you looking for? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said, I am. Do you remember that? And they all fell down, unable to stand. It's almost the same. Saul is going to Damascus and Jesus meets him and says, I'm Jesus, I'm the one you're looking for, and the persecuting. So he said, who are you, Lord? And Jesus said, I am. And notice that, I am the name of God. I am Jesus, the name of his humanity, whom you are persecuting. But enough of that. Rise, said Jesus, stand up, enter the city, and it shall be told you what you must do. Um, the conversion of Saul of Tarsus to become the person we know as Paul, who wrote most of the New Testament, this radical conversion. I don't know if you've ever read this or remember it. He writes about this many, many, many years later to Timothy. 
And let me read it. This is now Paul commenting on his own conversion. He said in 1 Timothy 1.12, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord to have strengthened me because he considered me faithful, putting me into service. Even though I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, a violent aggressor, yet I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord was more than abundant with the faith and the love which are found in Christ Jesus. It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am the foremost of all. I'm the number one example. Yet for this reason, because I am the number one sinner of all, for this reason I found mercy so that in me, Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. He is saying that his conversion was a unique demonstration of what this new birth, this coming alive awakening is. He said, I was the demonstration. You couldn't find anyone worse than me. And in the one who was as bad as they could be, the chief of all sinners, he demonstrated the magnitude of his mercy. And he said, my whole conversion was an example to all those who would believe and receive eternal life. And the word example there, it it means a sketch. Uh, It's the sort of, um, if you're an artist, you make a sketch before you do the painting. This is um, sitting doodling on paper and making a sketch Um, diagram, blueprint of where your business is going to go. Uh, He he says, I'm an example. He said, look look at me, you'll understand what eternal life is. And that's what I want to do. I'm fascinated with this. Um, I I just tell you that um, earlier this week, I, I couldn't sleep because of that jolly question that Jesus asked. Saul of Tarsus. Why, why, why are you persecuting me? And I couldn't sleep. Why? There's lots of things he could have said. And that's the last thing I expected him to say. So why, why was Saul of Tarsus persecuting him? That seems to be the very center of this conversion experience. Well, up to a point. What was the issue? In fact, I'm going to say what was the issue behind the crucifixion, let alone behind the conversion of Paul, because there is something there. And that question, why do you persecute me, is getting back. It's going all the way back down to the center. What is the issue? What is this all about? What are you doing, Saul? And you could push that back and say, why did you crucify me? Why why get so upset? The whole thing falls down on one word. And if you read the New Testament with this in mind, you'll see it everywhere. Um, The whole issue, I I don't know how to say this strong enough, because it's hardly ever talked about in church today, but the entire issue that was at stake 
in the crucifixion, but also in Saul of Tarsus, was righteousness. What is righteousness? I, I was, in my earliest years, sort of taught, I wasn't exactly taught, but it was the impression you got that righteousness was, how can I put it, just, uh, it was very cold, very cold, very uninviting. Righteousness, it, it had um, a, a sense of, of a steel, I want to say that, that, that steel, rigid set of rules and regulations and everything you couldn't do, should do, ought to do, must do, mustn't do, can't go, mustn't look, all that. And if you kept all of that and you came in your best Sunday suit and you looked like a very civilized human being on a Sunday morning and sat rigidly in your seat and said amen when you were supposed to, then it was generally thought, well, that's righteous. And of course, it, it projected onto God that God's holiness, his righteousness, what was similar. He, he reminded me of a Supreme Court judge with the little glasses on the end of his nose looking as miserable as he could possibly be and just ready to pounce because he's righteous. You see. Well, would you take that, that I've just said, if it in any way applies to what you think righteousness is, please flush it down the toilet. Please, that is absolute nonsense, rubbish. What is righteousness? I'll say this, you will never understand what Paul is talking about in all of his letters until you understand righteousness. In fact, I'd go as far to say you'll never understand the gospel nor enjoy its fullness until you understand righteousness. That's what it's all about. So let me... Just for a few minutes, before I get back to Paul, let, let's understand this driving force in his life, righteousness. It means, okay, nothing what I've just said. It means two parties or two persons that find a likeness in each other. And there is nothing that separates them. So, so you've got two parties, and the two parties find a likeness, a unity in each other. And there's nothing to separate them. So there is no guilt here. One party is not ashamed. Neither party feels inferior to the other. It is eye to eye, face to face. It is a likeness to each other. Nothing between, and it would be found out in the world system in the terms of covenant. Two persons in covenant work and walk in that way. Amos referred to that as can two walk together unless they be agreed, and that's sort of the basic idea. Back in um, British... Um, development of the language. If you go back into the 900s around there, um, th this word was called rightwise. I'm sure many of you read ancient British manuscripts and you, you would find there this word rightwise. And rightwise means just that, two persons like clockwise. 
You, you are walking together and you're walking in harmony. You're walking in step. You're walking in agreement. You are in balance. And as the one, so is the other. And so they are balanced together. And in, they're in accord with each other, in agreement with each other. And to that extent, they reveal each other. When you meet one, you really meet the other. They, 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 I was going to say reflect, that's not really, reveal is a better word. They reveal, they delight in each other and they be the delight of each other. Righteousness. To, to read um, the original root word in the Hebrew actually means just about that. Um, I know some of you would not remember, but you've probably heard of what is called the general store over here, the general store, and, and, and there would be sacks of flour and, and whatever else would go into a sack. You, you didn't buy them little packets or in the freezer. You went to the, the sack and you scooped out what you wanted from the sack and you put it into a scale. Do you remember that? And, and on the other side, you'd put a weight. And the scale, when it balanced, and I don't know about over here, but that would be called in some parts of the word a righteous balance. It means that what's in this plate here is in this plate here, and they balance. And there's nothing off. This one doesn't go down more than this one. That's righteous in the Hebrew language. It means that um, that there's a scale and it balances out, which actually comes over into Greek. I don't know if you've ever seen on the top of our court buildings here in the States, there is that lady with a scale. She's got a scale in her hand. And that actually, I won't even go there, but that, that is an image of a pagan goddess called Daiki, and daiki means right, righteousness. It means the balance. And so even in our court system, they say that the intent of the court is to bring balance and to bring harmony. And what's in one scale is in the other scale. Um, this is at the heart of creation. God made mankind not to be just a creature along with gorillas and mosquitoes. No, we were made unique. We would actually be in Christ. We were created to be in a union with Christ so that we would be in his image and in his likeness. And so here is, is God and here is us. And when he sees us, he sees us in Christ and, and we look at him and he looks at us and we are face to face and we have a likeness and we have a oneness and a union and, and delight in each other. Righteousness. Okay. Got that? I'm sure you have. Um, the fall, mankind's fall, is connected to that. They are going not to be with a righteousness or a harmony and a union and a no separation from God. They don't want that. They want it in and of themselves. 
And so the uh, temptation was, you shall be as God. You shall be as God. That is, it, it won't be a balance. It won't be seeing yourself in him and he seeing himself in you. But no, you will be my independent God. I'll be my own thing. I'll be righteousness in myself. And that's the essence of the fall in many respects. And out of that comes law. And you've read about that plenty of times in the scripture, law. And it's not only the law of Moses, that's when it got really specific. But everybody, we all have a law. Um, it's, it's, you know, we say, I'd never do that. How could he say that? How could she do that? What are we appealing to when we say that's not fair? What, what, what standard do we appeal to that makes something fair or not fair? Who says so? And most of the time we said so. It's in our culture. This is the law. It's unwritten, unspoken, but we, and we have it within. And there are some things we feel guilty for doing them, though no one really told us why. Well, the law of Moses came in, and that was ultra-specific. Now we know what is right and what is wrong. Well, what everybody missed was the law was given to show how widely we had totally missed it. It says the law was given so that sin might abound, not to make you righteous. But mankind took the law, the law of his own being, but also the law of Moses especially, and they determined to keep the law and thus be righteous. They would said, we will be on our pan of the scale and we've kept the law and therefore God will accept us, include us. We shall have access. But it doesn't work that way. The, the scripture says that the law in the first place couldn't be kept. It, it takes more than willpower to o overcome the lies of Satan. It takes more than willpower to keep any idea of loving God. It's not in the domain of willpower. We don't even discuss it as willpower. I'm going to try. It's, it's worthless. There's no, you can't do it. Uh, it, it. It takes God to live the love of God. And, and so the law came with a curse and the curse, which means a sort of a down thing, it's down on you. Um, and it says, if you break the law, which means break it in my spirit, my mind, my emotions, my actions, my words, my thoughts, if I break it, there is a curse of the law. I, I, I want to steer clear of the law, anything that has a curse hanging around it. Um, what is a curse? Well, essentially, it's, it's I am not. That's my, the curse is the judgment upon me that I find in my own mouth. I am not. I cannot. I have not. I never will have. I am not and I'm not worthy. And therefore, I am not worthy to approach God, to be loved of God, to be considered of God. I'm not worthy. Uh, I'm not loved. I'm not wanted. All shame and guilt is this 
down with the curse of the law. You broke it. You're no good. You're a failure. You're a loser. And with it comes the religious anxiety of exclusion. Um, I'm separated. I'm away. And I'm, I, I can't find my way back. And I, I don't matter. I'm in a hopeless situation, despair. I'm a victim of life. Get the drift. That's the curse. Comes with the law. You try to keep the law, and all these things just come like fleas on a dog. Um, and with that curse goes comparison, because I'm desperate here. I look at you, and I determine I'm a lot better than you are. And so I add that to my hope of righteousness, that if I keep the law, if I do good, if I have more morals and and do everything that I'm told to do by religious people, then God will surely, surely look at me and accept me. And I look at you and you're not doing so hot. And so I say, thank God, she's not doing so hot. And so I must be better. And I thank you, oh God, I'm not as other men. I'm not like them. I'm better. Curse of the law. The law comes with, if you do this, then you'll have that. And if then controls life. It's the anxiety of religion. Well, the Pharisees believed passionately that their performance of the law made them righteous. They believed God had to accept them because they were doing their very best to keep the law. But just to make sure, they added to the law what they call fence laws, which mean fences that kept you from even getting close to breaking the law. There were 2,000 of them. And so they expanded the law of God. Uh, just ridiculous. I wouldn't even go there. But they believed that these minutiae, these stupid little things that were laws on top of laws, all would give you righteousness. They were extremely evangelical, these Pharisees. Um, Pharisee, the best possible meaning of the word into English is separated ones. Uh, and they believed they were separated and they were keeping the law and would be received of God for doing it. They, they went everywhere trying to convert people to their way of life. And they would invite people not to come and get saved. They would say, come and dedicate yourself to the yoke of the law. They said, bring the law around your neck like a yoke and try and keep it. Saul of Tarsus, Paul as he was to be known, he was a Pharisee. He lived to keep the law to its utter extremities in order to be right with God. In Philippians 3, he said, I myself might, if you're looking for it, have confidence in my own flesh um, far more than anybody else. He says, I, I'm, don't you know who I am? He's being sarcastic on himself. And he says, I, I'm, I'm an Israelite of Israelites. He said, I, I was circumcised the eighth day. I'm of the nation of Israel. I'm the tribe of Benjamin. I know where I come from. I am a Hebrew of Hebrews. 
which means that they spoke high Hebrew language over breakfast. It was the family language. And as to the law, he said, I'm a Pharisee. As to zeal, I took it all the way to persecuting the church. In fact, he said, as to the righteousness which is in the law, I would be found blameless. If you want to find someone who kept the law, that was me. He was sent from his city in Tarsus by his parents to Jerusalem. And there he was trained under one of the greatest rabbis of the day called Gamaliel. Enter Jesus. I don't know if if Saul was in Jerusalem at the time. Um, Maybe, maybe not. But the Pharisees certainly knew what Jesus was saying. Would you understand me now if I reminded you of that word that Jesus said, except your righteousness exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees. Do you remember that? Uh, If you were looking at someone that kept every law, at least on the surface, kept every law in the book, and they they were the paradigm of, of righteousness, and Jesus said, that's nothing. They, they, your righteousness has got to exceed that. It's a big word. I mean, go far beyond that. It, it's no wonder the Pharisees got upset with him. I mean, ridiculous. Who could be more righteous than a Pharisee? And do you remember Jesus confronted them, and he said, do you remember, take my yoke upon you. Learn from me. That is not the yoke of the law, but take my yoke. I am taking the place of the law. Take my yoke and learn of me. I say it again, Paul certainly knew of Jesus if he hadn't actually met him. And certainly he knew what he was teaching, this stuff. It's no wonder that the Pharisees got very, first of all, annoyed with Jesus but that quickly turned to anger with Jesus and that quickly turned to rage and especially among the Pharisees because they were the charismatics of the temple crowd. Um, There were many liberals in the temple who hardly believed anything, but the Pharisees, they were evangelical. They were charismatic in the sense of being fanatics, extremists in their keeping of the law. And I say it's no wonder that when Jesus spoke of an immediacy to God's presence, of this love, of the most intimate love of God, and he himself revealing that love in everything he said and did, that that only showed up the more the harsh, cruel religion is the cruelest bunch on the planet. Cruel religion. And that mean set of face. And as they stood there, you could see them a mile off with that look on their face as they mentally demeaned Jesus. And then he claimed to be the son of God. And you remember they took up stones. They were going to stone him to death for blasphemy because he said he was the son of God. It's getting too hot for comfort around here. And then do you remember when he said to the man, your sins are forgiven and they're horrified. They said, who can forgive sins but God only? 
The multitudes hung on his words. You know that. Healed the sick all over the place. And, and the Pharisees began to lose their power. They had awful power. I mean that sense of the, the power the Pharisee had was um, frightening. That when they spoke, everyone listened because they said they are holy men. They're holy men. They stood on street corners in their blue suits that said we're like the heavens. And, and, and they would pray long prayers for people to hear them pray. They, their people thought they were something else. But their power is slipping away. Jesus is presenting this God of beauty, this God who is love. And he's talking of a righteousness beyond the righteousness of the Pharisees. I say again, it's no wonder they got upset. And so they determined to crucify him, not merely to kill him. It had to be by crucifixion. I don't believe Paul was old enough to have a vote in that, um, even if he had been on the council that did. Uh, but certainly being part of this people, um, Paul ha had a, a say, and he would have voted crucify him. The only persons who could crucify were the Romans. They, they were the army of occupation, and they brought with them crucifixion. Why, why is it that these people in the temple who hated the Romans would never do anything for them or with them, but they're going to hold hands with the Romans in order to get Jesus crucified. Why was it so important that Jesus was crucified? Because to a Jewish person, crucifixion tied in with a verse in Deuteronomy, cursed is the one who hangs upon a tree. And so a person crucified, hanging on wood, was looked upon as the ultimate sinner. And they said, cursed by God. That is why he's hanging on a tree. And therefore he's damned into outer darkness. That was a Jewish mentality. When the Jews cried, crucify him, crucify him, they were saying he is a sinner of sinners, cursed of God, damn him to hell. That is what it meant, the word crucifixion. And the high priest, the temple crowd, they determined that it wasn't merely to shut Jesus up, but it was to shut him up with such shame before all the multitudes that it would be in crucifixion. They would never again follow a crucified leader, a dead one maybe, but a crucified one. It would mean an ultimate failure. It meant mission aborted. It's over. It's done. And so they said, it's crucifixion. And we will work with the Romans, our worst enemies, to get that done. And so you have the mock trial. And he's condemned for blasphemy because he claimed to be the Messiah and God. And crucified with the screaming mob. And everybody went home to celebrate. Pharisees, temple crowd, three days.
Then the empty tomb, but of course the testament of the soldiers could easily be purchased. And so even though the soldiers said there was light and earthquake and the, the, the high priest said, no, here's a bag of money, you know it was the disciples came and they stole the body. And so it was, it was just a little hiccup. He died. He died in shame. He was crucified as one cursed of God. And then the disciples stole the body. You know how it is. And everything was quiet for six weeks. After 50 days after all of the crucifixion, suddenly Jerusalem erupted with Peter preaching and it seemed everywhere talking that Jesus was alive, that the man that was on the cross and put in the tomb was now the man who had come out of the tomb, risen from the dead, and here were people filling Jerusalem saying they'd met him. They know it. They know he's alive. And he's not just simply alive as down the street. It is, he is alive, exalted, exalted to be one with the Father, one that there, that there is a man inside of God. <laughs> and the followers said that, that he's the Messiah and that therefore he has fulfilled the law. He's ended the temple. It's all over. Righteousness, being right with God, being in harmony and agreement and the delight of God is in what God did for us in this one called Jesus. And so here is a righteousness that is the gift of God, not you working for it. It's God giving it. It's not originating in your willpower to be good and whatever. It's originating in God himself, nothing to do with you. He gives it to you in this person, of Jesus. And as early as Acts chapter 4, which is right after that day of Pentecost when it all erupted, um, they preach and said, there is salvation in no one else. There is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. That's as narrow as a hen's face. Um, there is no possibility that this is another suggestion. We could do this, we could do that. No. This one, the man who walked among us, that was crucified as one sinner cursed of God, has been raised out of death and is now seated with the Father and the Holy Spirit. And he is the only one through whom we can be saved. And at that, that's when Saul of Tarsus flew into what amounted to an uncontrollable rage. It would take us a whole hour to go through the scriptures that describe it. So just let me swiftly, in Acts 8.3, it says, Saul began ravaging, listen to these words, ravaging the church. It says he entered house after house dragging off men and women. So he had no um, apology. He, it was a blind rage because uh, women, 
didn't make it children, didn't make any difference. And he would put them in prison. Acts chapter 9, it says, Saul breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. And he wants to go to Damascus, again saying both men and women, that he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. When he reported himself in Acts 22, he said, I went from one synagogue to another to imprison and beat. That was a lash that they put upon Jesus, where it tore the flesh out. Beat those who believed in Jesus. And it says, when the blood of Stephen was shed, he said, I stood there giving my approval, guarding the clothes of those who were killing him. Acts 26, he said, when he gave his testimony, there is, I was convinced I ought to do all that was possible to oppose the name of Jesus of Nazareth. He says, I put many of the saints in prison. When they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. I went from one synagogue to another to have them punished. I tried to force them to blaspheme. In my obsession, I went to foreign cities to persecute them. Galatians 1, he says, I used to persecute the church of God beyond measure. I tried to destroy it. Hmm. That's the fellow who is going to Damascus. He he, is left behind a bloody trail in Jerusalem and all the cities around it. Any person he can lay hold on that named the name of Jesus, beaten, tortured, lashed, imprisoned, murdered. Now he's going to Damascus to advance the cause. And he's got letters from the high priest. That's significant because the high priest was ready to give this young upstart letters, but apparently the high priest himself wouldn't get involved. He was saying, I've had enough. But Saul of Tarsus said, I'm just getting started. And it's then, as he is on that road into Damascus, as I said a moment ago, it was a light that was brighter, he reports, brighter than the noonday sun. I try and get this picture. A light that is brighter than the noonday sun, as if a thousand suns fill the sky. A light that is unearthly a light which is really something other than just regular light. To a Jewish person educated in the Old Testament, they knew what that was. That was the glory of God. Whenever God revealed himself, just pull back the curtain, it was like a shining light, as if, as if love took on a color. Love took on a radiance. And it shone. That, that's the idea. And, and there's a glory that the human creature could not handle. And sometimes um, that they, they ran in terror. In this case, uh, um, Saul was blinded by, by this light. But he could see that in the middle of the light, there was a man. Now, I... I've got to emphasize this. This is central not only to this story, but to the whole New Testament. Do do you ever think right now 
If you are a Christian and I say, who is God? Do you ever think of the man, Jesus, in the center of that blazing, radiant, unearthly light of God's love in the very center of it is a man who looks like a man, talks like a man, one of us, your kin, a man is God. I think many people think, you know, incarnation meant, you know, little baby Jesus in the manger. And um, then he sort of went back to heaven. I'm somewhere, I don't know. No, that's the Christian message is, is that God has become human. I mean, if that blows your mind, what do you think it did? to Saul of Tarsus, at least you've heard rumors of that. Um, Saul never had. God became human and is now in that blazing light that is the glory of God. And in the Hebrew language, Paul makes a special note of that, that he addressed me with respect. He came to me knowing I'm a Hebrew speaker and part of the nation of Israel. And he talked to me in the Hebrew language. And he said that the words engulfed him. Saul, he knows my name. He knows me by name, by my given name. Saul, Saul, why, why do you persecute me? Now, put yourself in Saul's shoes. He didn't know that was Jesus. All he knew, he is looking at something that defies everything he's ever been taught. Something that to him, unless he was seeing it, would be blasphemy. That a man, a human, is God. And that that has to be. For the glory of God is shared with none. And here stands the silhouette of a man. In the middle of the light. Well, I, I want to. I want to make you confused because Saul was confused. I mean, what is going on? I mean, on one side, the glory of God arresting me on the road. Could it be like Moses and the burning bush, and God is endorsing my mission, and He is making me another Moses that would rid of the name of Jesus for the glory of God? I mean, that was there. Why would the glory of God come to this man on the road to Damascus on his way to kill people unless God was endorsing him? That would be a thought. But on the other hand, he said, I'm persecuting. What? I mean, I am confused. The glory of God is asking me why I am persecuting him. When I am God's man, I am God's representative delivering Judah and Israel from this pretender called Jesus. And he says, who who are you? Uh, Who's speaking to Who is in this light? I mean, this is one of my favorite. (laughs) Can, Can you, can you imagine? I can't. After nearly 70 years of thinking about this, I cannot imagine 
what went on in the mind of Saul when the man who is God said, I am, that's the name of God, I am Jesus. And to make sure you identify me, Jesus of Nazareth, the one that you are persecuting. Can you imagine that Saul's life fell apart? And I mean that, it unraveled. If the one he is persecuting is God, then I am more than wrong. I am wrongness. I am more than made a few bad decisions. This is the very guts of my life falling apart. Do you understand? I am going to Damascus, believing that I am the hero of God, the God of Israel. I am going to kill those that blaspheme his name by naming the name of Jesus. And as I am going, Jesus, the last I saw of him was a bloody mess upon the cross, cursed of God. And now he comes in the light of the glory of God, and I am Jesus. And, and don't think it's some fantasy, it's all. I am Jesus of Nazareth. I have an address on earth. I had a carpenter shop there. That's the one. I am Jesus of Nazareth. And I am now revealed as being God of God. I, I, the man lays flat on the ground. His nose is buried in the dust of the Damascus road. He's, he's engulfed in the light and the voice of this one, the one that he's been persecuting his people, the one he has cursed himself. Who are you, Lord? Oh. And of course, the, the question now, it gets more involved. Why do you persecute me? Come on. I mean, if, if this one in the glory, if this is God himself, and I've been killing his people and cursing his name, then I just cower and, and wait for the smiting. I, I wait for the flash of lightning that will consume the cells of my body. I wait to be turned into the pit of hell. What, what have I done? I, I'm, I'm lost. Does that make sense? But instead, this voice, Saul, Saul. Have you noticed any time in the Bible when a name is mentioned twice, then it has got great emotion or feeling or endearment behind it? Do you remember when Martha, having a rare fit, comes and screams at her sister Mary? Do you remember Jesus said, Martha, Martha. That is, lady, lady. What I'm going to say, you're not going to like, but understand, you're, you're dear, you're beloved. Martha, Martha. Or when he wept over Jerusalem's sin and rejection, Jeremy says, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. And it was attended by weeping 
of love. And now he says, soul, soul. Can you, you can feel the hairs on your neck standing up. You're waiting, you're waiting. Smite me. And instead, there's a gentle voice. Soul, soul. It's gentle. Um, it, it's, a, it's a feeling pro-me. And then why? Oh, come on, no. Why? Why begins a conversation? Why is not the final word? If I ask you why, my sentence ends with a question mark which demands an answer from you. A conversation is ensuing. Why? Why? Why, why, do, you, why do you persecute me? That, 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 that means he's interested in me. I mean, really, why would God care? I've persecuted, I've killed, I've blasphemed his name, and you know, do it, get rid of me. No, he's sitting down for conversation. He says, I'm very interested in your motive. Why did you do it so? Why? Tell me why. You've got, you've got to face it. You say, you've got to face it. I, I, I see what you've done, but I want to hear from your lips out of your heart why you did it. I mean, why, why do you want to kill me, Paul? Um, what wrong have I done? How have I harmed you? This is a very upsetting conversation. Saul of Tarsus doesn't know anymore who he is. He doesn't know who he was. His entire identity has disappeared down a drain hole. And here, why? Why do you persecute me? You see, the word why takes me to the very heart, the core, the will, the motivation of a man. Why did you do it? It's not, you see. He, he, he didn't say, I mean, okay, think he could have said other things. He, instead of saying why, Jesus could have said, who do you think you are? How dare you persecute my people? This is the day of my vengeance. I know a lot of Christians that would think he should have said that. In fact, when they think of the vengeance of God, they don't think of God sitting down for a chat with a man on the road saying, now please tell me why you did it. The day of vengeance is supposed to be that lightning, thunder, snarls, fire, dragon, grass. That's the God people worship, the day of my vengeance. Well, this is the day. This is the day of his vengeance. Have you thought about that? This is the day of God's vengeance. He's got the arch persecutor on his face. So why don't you crush him like a roach under your foot? No, this is the day of God's vengeance. And God's vengeance is, I love you, Saul. Oh, Saul, Saul. Let's get to the heart of this. Let's get down there. Why did you do this? You know, why, why didn't Jesus say, not why, but what do you think you're doing? You're burning hell for your wickedness. No, I say it again, that, that doesn't fit. This is the day of God's vengeance. Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Let's get to the heart of it. But the you see, Paul's life, and I don't know if you can feel this, I hope somewhere by Wednesday you're going to really get this. Um, Paul's life was over because 
everything Paul had ever believed and studied and desired had come to a head in this, that now he's the representative of the people of God to save the people of God from this heretic blasphemer called Jesus. He believes he's God's protector. He believes he's the custodian of God and he's going to look after God and save God from this one who dares to say what he says. And in this one, the moment out from the glory of God came the words, I am Jesus. I mean, what? What? I am What? I got no words to describe it, let alone that man whose brain was fried. I am Jesus. In that moment, life is over. His entire life and identity, hopes, ambitions, they're all unraveled in a second. Everything he stood for, everything he raged at was now revealed to be a fantasy, a phantom, a lie, a devilish lie. He was wrong to the very core of his being. And all my fellow Pharisees, we're wrong. The whole temple crowd is wrong. We crucify God. Please, please get it. This is, a, this is the heart of it. What have we done? Crucify God. We, we, we call God cursed. And I'm still, I, I, I know he said why, but, and then, then he said, stand up. What? Stand up? I, I, I stand up? I, I thought, I mean, holy God isn't holiness that he's just mad at you and so grovel. Isn't, isn't, isn't being holy and religious and I'm unworthy, I'm no good. I thought that was I thought that was pleasing to God. And now God says, stand up. Don't, don't lay there groveling. Stand up. Look me in the eye, face to face. Boy, it's getting more chaotic by the minute. Um he, he's he's not gonna punish me. In fact, he's not really gonna talk about what I did, he just said, why do you persecute me? That's the only time he used the word. Um, he doesn't say, now let's go over and, and, and do inner healing for the rest of it. I mean, no, he just said, that's it. Stand up, face to face, look me in the eye. And I want you to go to Damascus. No more conversation on the road here. You, you, you go to Damascus because you and I have got a lot of work to do and I want to share it with you. Please, I, I know you've read this before, but can you get the grasp of what's going on here? The man, the human who is in the heart of the glory of God which means that he is the one holding up the cosmos. And yet he wants to sit and talk with me, and he calls me by name 
and says, let's look eye to eye because you and I are going to walk together. The question didn't get answered on the road because all of this was going on. But it's very interesting. Paul gives his testimony many times throughout the Acts of the Apostles, refers to it in his epistles. But, and the one thing that's always the same is, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? There, there are other details that change in the testimony that he leaves out in this one, brings up in this one. But it's always this, that voice, that voice that spoke those specific words to me. Why? See, and the trouble is, Paul wasn't seeking Jesus. I'm sorry, I know, I know this is upsetting people, because you're supposed to be seeking Jesus. Well, Paul wasn't. Well, he was. He was seeking Jesus to destroy his name from the face of the earth. Instead, he... He meets with him in the way he never thought. And, and when he does, he doesn't ask for forgiveness. Isn't that strange? He doesn't ask for acceptance. He, he's not asking for anything. He's just waiting for the axe to fall, which never does. What you've got here is that Jesus is wanting Saul, wanting him dearly. It's Jesus who is pursuing Saul relentlessly. It is Jesus who lays hold upon Saul. In fact, in Philippians, Paul uses the word arrest. He said, he he arrested me. But he's, he's not using it like a police arrest. He said, his love got a hold of me. In Corinthians, he said, I was constrained by the love of God. But it came out of left field. I, I didn't. I wasn't looking for him. I didn't want him. I didn't ask for forgiveness. I didn't want acceptance. I, but I was confronted. And he asked me why. And all my motives for pursuing him have collapsed. I don't have a leg to stand on. I, I could tell you why I did it, but it doesn't make any difference, does it? Because, well, if he's... God, if he is exalted, just like all those witnesses said he was, and I, I, I brutalized them because they said he was exalted, and now I discover he is. And so all my motives, I, why did I crucify you? I was so wrong. I was so blind. I was in such darkness that didn't even allow me to think of the possibility of anything outside of my world of religion. And we crucified him. We crucified him. We called him the cursed of God. What's the cursed of God? The one who breaks all the law. It's the one who is unworthy because they've broken the law and they're cursed of God. And we said he's the cursed of God. I I don't know how much of this actually went through Paul's mind in those three days that he sat in Damascus, blind, 
silent. I, I, I don't know. But it was in those three days a lot of this happened. Uh, Paul, can you put it together? They put a man, they put a man on the cross and said, the man is cursed. But now he finds out that man was God. We, we put God on the cross. And, and we, we tore his body to shreds, declaring him cursed and damned of God. We thought we were doing it to a man. But we were doing it to God who became man. So that man, a man that's God, is equal to every man and woman. He created them. So there was one who actually, from the very being of himself, represented the human race. The human race found focus in one man. And that whole race, we who were part of that, determined him cursed and damned. And, and he took it. He never said a word against it. He took it. When we said you're cursed, he said, I take it. And when they said, I'll treat you as cursed, he said, I take it. He's one human being that equals all human being. And he is accepting our sin and our curse and making it his own. So that one human being now stands before God, who is the human race now, and the human race cursed, and full of sin stands before God in the person of that one man who is God. God has come to take our place and God as us. And what's he going to do? Now that the whole sin and curse of the human race has become his, what's he going to do? He's going to fulfill its destiny. For back in the garden it says, that if you eat of the tree, you shall surely die. And that hung over the human race. But now this one who has become the human race shall take its sin and its curse, and he will die. And he will die the death of the human race. When that one person who is God who has taken to himself human and now represents every human, when he goes into death, we all go into death. In fact, Paul wrote about it in one of his earliest letters. It was something that he got it. Why do you crucify me? We crucified you because we're idiots. We crucified you because we're ignorant. We didn't realize but now that I realize, Galatians 3, it, Paul wrote this, this man wrote it. And this is what he saw in those three days as he was blind. He said, as many as are under the works of the law 
If you're trying to be good, if you're trying to be a Christian, under the works of the law, my trying to please God, my trying to do something to please God, he said, as many as are the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, and he quotes, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. Then he says, Christ, this Jesus, who is God, man, who took our place, Christ, redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. Because it's written, cursed is everyone who hangs on the tree. And he did that in order that in him, in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come upon us so that we should receive the promise of the Spirit. He said he became, notice that, he didn't merely take it like holding some disgusting package. He became it. That man on the cross who is God and equal to every human being has actually become our curse. And he died carrying our curse and all the sin that goes with it to death. And a great exchange takes place. He took our curse and he gives us righteousness. That is, he takes in himself everything that separates us in our own minds away from God, the guilt and the shame and the blame and the inferiority. He takes it once and for all. When you realize this man is God, there's no question what he did is absolute and final and complete. He took it to death. And the father endorsed what he had done and declared him the one who had taken the curse that we might receive his righteousness, his eye to eye, face to face, in the embrace, father to son. He raised him from the dead. He exalted him. And he said, you who are equal to one with every human being, you carried them to death. Now in your resurrection, every human being, in your exaltation, come human, sit us down together. That's the good news, the goodest news you've ever heard. A righteousness, yes. That you can sit face to face with the Father without guilt. Face to face to the Father without sense of inferiority, shame. And you don't have to work through 2,000 laws and rules and regulations in order to get there. But to look to the one God-man who took your place and did it. He became the curse. And he died carrying it with him. So that now, Scripture, Jeremiah, speaking of that event, sin is remembered no more. And in the temple, the veil that separated man from God was ripped into. 
So we have access now face to face with God, righteousness. Saul, Saul, why, why do you persecute me? Why? Because I, I believe that you were taking away the one thing by which I controlled my salvation. I controlled my salvation because I did this, I did that, I did the other. And because I did that, God had to look at me and say, okay. And you took that away by saying I had to have a righteousness that exceeded the righteousness. But now, of course, how stupid, how foolish. I, I, I was persecuting your followers because they said my righteousness wasn't enough. <clears throat> they said I wasn't, I, I didn't have the righteousness. I, I didn't have the I was on the wrong track and I killed them for it because they dared to suggest that I was not in control of my salvation. And now here I stand, I've seen it now. A bit late to answer the question. No, the question led you to the heart of it. You had to see that. You had to see it. You tried to kill me because you wanted to control your salvation. And in me, you meet the God who did it for you, who gives it as a gift. And it was your trying to control your salvation that was carried to death at the cross. And now you submit. What do you submit to? You submit to the righteousness of God. You submit to what he did. And did so perfectly, there's nothing else to add to it. And how did he do it? He did it by God faith, an unearthly faith. But it was expressed in human. He, as a human, believed his father would carry him through as he carried our sin. And now I surrender to him. I rest in him. I rest in his faith. I rest in what he did. I don't, I don't buy this by my faith. I rest in the fact he purchased it by his faith and by the shedding of his blood. All I do is submit. I surrender. I collapse. It's about all Saul could do. And, and there's no time to debate, sit down and discuss. This is no time for 900 verses of just as I am to see if Saul is going to make a decision. Good grief. He's looking at the man who has accepted him. It's for him to accept his acceptance. It's not time to let Jesus into my heart. Good grief, man. He came into your heart and became your curse and carried you to death. All I can say is, I get it. I see it. With thanks, I submit. Faith is because you've seen something. Faith is the eyes of your soul. You see in what you see, you believe. The Holy Spirit opens our eyes to see Jesus has done it all. And it was Jesus who did it, not a formula. And Jesus is the salvation, not a thing he gives us. And Jesus is the one that introduces himself to us and holds us. And we rest in his arms. Salvation. Well, that's very much just the introduction. Get, I, I, I can see right now we're going to be here for a few weeks. 
as to what really happened on that day. But I trust that if you can see just that little bit of what Saul of Tarsus saw, that made Saul of Tarsus who he was. When you read the New Testament, it's written with fire. I mean, that man doesn't know how to stop. The whole chapter, Ephesians 1 through, I don't know, verse 1 through almost 17, 18, uh, in fact, it might be the whole chapter. There's no punctuation in the Greek. It just pours out of me. He can't stop talking. He's so excited. I hear preachers read that. They read it like the Manhattan phone book. It's, they've missed it. They don't know what he's excited about. This is it. And we shall resume the next time. But now may the blessing of God, who is almighty love, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, Open the eyes of our understanding to see Jesus and his finished work and to go on our way in exceeding joy and peace with God. So I bless you and I declare that is the way it is. Amen.